श्री गुरु वैष्णापुर परंपरा की जय गुड इवनिंग एवरीवन थैंक यू फॉर माय होस्ट फॉर इनवाइटिंग मी हियर एंड फॉर प्रोवाइडिंग मी विद अ प्रोवोकेटिव टॉपिक टू स्पीक अबाउट and uh, i will uh, speak briefly about this topic from uh, bhagavad gita in the context of bhagavad gita which is many of you may be familiar with it's quite a famous text sacred text amongst the hindus and the vedantins or those who are uh, embrace hinduism from a, a experiential uh a spiritual experiential orientation rather than merely a religious one and um it's a good and interesting book to speak about nonviolence from and the reason i say that is because the context is um that the the, the gita is uh, the conversation between krishna and arjuna but it takes place on a battlefield so and it's a battle is about to take place in a rather kind of a civil war at that which is always a little more painful <laughs> not that we're all not brothers and sisters but you know, sometimes we we think some are and others are not and so to be at odds with one's own family even then uh violence that uh may ensue from such seems that much more um undesirable uh so nonetheless the text itself mentions the word ahimsa three times once in the 10th chapter and once in the 13th chapter and once in the 16th chapter in one sense it might appear it's not an an overriding theme of the text but i want to speak about it in such a way that the idea the essential uh, spiritual idea of nonviolence will come to the fore and and uh, we'll see how it actually is very much at the heart of the whole texts in the 10th chapter as i say it's mentioned in the context of of a noble uh, quality manifest by shri krishna he says by himself in my position as the mahaishwar as the as the as the ishwar the, the kind of the the uh, oversoul of of the world hmm? mentions nonviolence and himself with a number of other qualities and um in the 13th chapter he mentions nonviolence with a number of other qualities and labels them there as as uh, being examples of knowledge and in the 16th chapter he describes a number of qualities of the godly people and the ungodly people and amongst the godly qualities of himself mentioned as one of them so these are the few utterances and uh it would seem that um 
as I say, three times mentioned in a, in a text of 700 verses over 18 chapters. Um, it's rather secondary in a sense. Ahimsa in the context of yoga is um, part of the ethical foundation that the yogic experience is said to arise out of. We have your yama niyama, your do's and your don'ts. Nam, yama niyama, then asana. First, walk, it means, appropriately. Yama niyama means doing and don't doing, what to do and what not to do. So, when we speak about doing, then we're speaking about movement as opposed to sitting. You know, there's that American saying, don't just sit there, do something. And a clever Buddhist author uh, entitled her book, Don't Just Do Something, Sit There. So there's something to be said about sitting. Now, something to be said about doing in relation to sitting. So, in one sense, as I'm explaining, the yoga experience um, ultimately arises in its beginnings, early beginnings, arise out of out of doing, hmm? out of what to do and what not to do, having a certain ethical outlook uh, and, and con- uh, conduct, a way of walking, if you will, in the world that will make you eligible for sitting. This is very much brought out in the sixth chapter of the Gita, where sitting is the topic, dhyan, to sit. Dhyan literally means to meditate and Meditation is typically done in the sitting posture. It's going within, just like even outwardly speaking, in a sense, if we want to think deeply, we need a quiet place. And there has has to be less activity or less um, objects for my senses to be involved with, to think deeply about something. If you want to study and penetrate on a particular subject, you may need to close the door and uh, turn off the television and, and the children and so forth. <laughs> so, um, yoga, of course, and meditation is to go, go deeper. It means to go beyond just thinking. To think deeply, one has to close down, in other words, to activate the psychic dimension of our uh, lives, we have to close down to some extent the physical dimension of our lives. You follow? So, but yoga is, go- is, 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 is intended to take us beyond not only the physical dimension of our lives, but the psychic dimension as well, or to explore them to their fullest find their limitations and the extent to which they are oppressing us in our present condition, the mind, that is, the senses and their demands. And by stilling them, the senses, or withdrawing them, pratyahara, for example, from the objects of the world, sound, sight, things to touch, aromas to smell, and so forth, to shut down, in a sense, like a tortoise might bring its arms within the shell, our physical dimension, that we might become more active in the psychic dimension, and then harness the mind. And uh, yoga meditation is about, well, closing down the the psychic dimension as well, ultimately. And it's not that we have, because we have a mind that we can know, 
we think that. <laughs> That's the problem. Thinking is not knowing. But the more that we can stop the mind, the more we can know what we are, hmm? actually. That the mind and the busyness, metaphorically, between our ears is getting in the way of. So, this is kind of a going backwards to go forward yoga, to go within, go in a different way of against the kind of the current, if you will, the outgoing current of the world. And um, so, as I mentioned in the sixth chapter of the Gita, it's all about this sitting. And uh, very interestingly, when Krishna begins to speak about sitting, he gives an emphasis, as I say, on walking or on doing as opposed to sitting. How to do, how to move in such a way that you can actually sit. Because what stops us from sitting and going deeply within is our concern about the world around us. And our concern is based on a, uh, our attachments to different things that, that uh, propel our... You know, there's a carrot, if you will, <laughs> that uh, we're moving um, after. There's a fruit for all the work, all the effort that we put in, that at the end of the day is what we're after. We're moving for the fruits for the, of, our, of our activities, to enjoy them. We have attachment to enjoy the result of our activity, and it's motivating us to move. Unfortunately, it's keeping us moving and moving because as much as we take the fruit, is as much as we then owe. You follow me? As much as you take is as much as you owe. This is the whole principle of karma. It's a taking and there's a debt that's incurred. And so we have to keep busy for that. I owe, I owe, they say, so off to work I go. Something like that. When you borrow money from the bank, it looks like you have gained um, but you, if you read the fine print, you owe much more than you have in your hand when the bankman, banker hands you the check. So the karmic realm is, is the realm of exploitation, if you will. It's the realm of taking. We think that by taking and adding something on to what we think we are, somehow our life will be enhanced, it will be improved. The chance of our surviving will be improved, that we may keep the things that we have or that we may get the things that we want and, and thinking that by such I'll be more fulfilled and so forth. This is, this is the realm of, um, that most of us are circul uh, circulating um, within. It's rather circular. Uh, so to move away from that, how, how do we... And, and, how do we do that? So there's a way of walking, as I say, that facilitates sitting because as much as we have attachments then and, and desire in relation to sense objects, as much as it's difficult, as much as it is difficult for us to sit because they're calling on us. We get up for a reason. If you have no need, if you have no want, why move? Some philosophers will reason like this wisely. I don't think it's the whole picture. 
That's another thing. But uh, it's an interim. If you're happy, if you're fulfilled, if you have no want, then why move? So we're moving because we want, and we want because we're unfulfilled. And the more we move in pursuance of our wants and what we think will enhance our lives, the more wanty or needy we remain or become. It's like, uh, like fueling the fire of desire. And we are, metaphorically speaking, burning in that. After all, our body is on fire. That's a fact. It is burning. So yoga is really kind of about extinguishing that fire. But just to say to you now, sit and extinguish the fire, well, well it's, 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 that's not so easy. So there's a way by which we are taught in yoga, if you will, to move so that we can sit. And that is to move in terms of your interest, but with the, the practice and the culture of doing it without attachment to the fruit. After all, if you are working and acting for acquiring something, how much attention can you pay to what you're actually doing? Do you follow me? And part of the problem of our life in terms of not being fulfilled is that we're not able to pay attention. We get bored even. And the life is actually quite exciting. I mean, every atomic particle is is, is fascinating affair. And um, we found ourselves bored or distracted. And so this is what we're distracted by, the pursuit of the fruit of our action, rather than doing the action because it should be done. And so this is part, anyway, in brief, of the idea of how to walk in such a way that you can actually begin to sit. So it's a, it's a cultivation of a kind of a practical and well-thought-out detachment. When I speak of detachment, it may sound a little bit... Um, unattractive or renunciation or giving up and so forth but this is a, our reaction our, a negative reaction to that is only based on a superficial understanding of it because think practically for a moment renunciation and detachment is really the first stage of love love is about giving so and detachment is not about taking is it when we have a relationship with someone else, for example, because we need them, we feel we need them, or we need a thing to make ourselves full, then we're on, to one extent or another, the take. And we don't allow that thing or that person to have a life of its own. We see it in relation to what my perceived needs are. And I abuse that person or that thing accordingly because it has a life of its own. It has a bigger purpose than that which can be conceived in my mind which is so small. The world of my mind, our mind, is so small and so uncomfortable. It's not even comfortable for us. In other words, we we see things, we hear things, we taste things, we touch things some impulse is there in the mind and we determine I like this, I don't like that, 
this is good, this is bad, this is happy, this is sad, and that's our world of happies and sads and goods and bads. What's wrong with it is that, very simplistically, your good may be my bad, your happy may be my sad, your hot may be my cold. We're at odds with one another. But we're attached to our sense of self, the small world in our mind. Is it good or is it bad? Is it hot or is it cold? These determinations are made by our particular senses in conjunction with our mind. To what extent do they really tell us about the nature of being when they put us at odds with other beings, for that matter? So the small world of our mind, it really is not even that comfortable for us. We want everyone else to fit inside of it, but even we're not comfortable there. So it's not a reasonable proposal. It's not a reasonable way to, to walk in the world and conduct ourselves and then talk of peace at the same time. Or ahimsa, nonviolence. There's an overriding violence that all of us are implicated in, that we are shy to look too closely at. It doesn't make us look as good as we might think we, we are at first. But again, as I say, this detachment or this moving back from that kind of life, that taking life, which we're a little uh, reticent to do, is really the first stage of loving. Just like if I'm too close to someone and attached to them, then I can't see them for what they, a thing for what it really is. I have to step back and science calls us, for example, to be objective about things so that we can see them for what they are. So if we don't understand a thing for what it is because we're attached to it and we're distorting it by making it out to be something that will gratify me, that will fulfill me, thinking myself to be just this mental picture of myself. I like this, I don't like that. I'm a father because I have a daughter. I'm a daughter because I have a mother and I'm attached to her. Not that you shouldn't be, but these are the identities that we have. Think about it. Our sense of I is derived from our sense of my. Two small words, but they say a lot. I and my. What I think is mine is what determines what I think I am. You understand? It's my car. It's a Volvo. And I'm a, you know, whatever. I'm a baby boomer and I drive a, you know, this is me. This is, the, this is how they sell things to us. You know, the, or the Marlboro man used to be that guy on the horse, you know, until he choked. <laughs> but, uh, you know, this is you. So we have our attachments and our attachments, our my sense of my, with these just two, little, two letters, the whole, whole, is the basis of the whole of our material existence, our whole material identity. Our my is our I. But how secure is that I? We're looking for security in terms of our sense of identity and preserving it and enhancing it. Will you tell me how secure it is? How much of anything is yours at all? Talk to time. 
Nothing belongs to us. If you own it, then you can keep it. If you cannot keep it, then to what extent do you own it? To what extent do we own anything? Only in a false sense of identifying with it, being attached to it. And these attachments, they, as I say, this sense of my forms my I. This I, sense of I, will never endure. It will, you cannot preserve it. It appears that this sense of I is, is threatened with potential non-existence. And this threat is not an idle threat. It's, it's actually a fact. You may endure that sense of I in the memory of some people for some time, and they will pass. And so if we want to arrive at an at a, at a enduring sense of self and one that is happy, we want to endure and we want to endure happily. How can we gain enduring happiness in relation to things that don't endure, appearances that come and go, that in common English parlance are said to be here today and gone tomorrow. These are heavy thoughts. They sound a little depressing, (laughs) perhaps. But this is the first step in love, actually. To move back from that, you find it to, to, to think about that, start to conduct yourself in relation to such thoughts, you gain capacity to sit, to go within, and to come to know an enduring sense of self that doesn't need, that has no wants, doesn't need to move, but when it becomes really full, then it will move in celebration of its fullness. That is the difference between lila and karma. And in between, sitting. Karma is we're moving out of ignorance, out of a perceived necessity. And the more we take, the more we owe. To move away from that is to come to peace. Shanti, shanti, shanti. And if you go deep, deep within consciousness with what you are, exploring the experiencer rather than the experienced, the things, The best things in life are not things. We shall go within or go without. That's the truth. And the more we go within, then what possibility lies there beyond the oppressive rule of the mind and the demands of the senses? From stillness and rest from that oppression to the fullness of of love, Detachment is the, only the first phase of love. Not taking, not exploiting, that's a good thing. Ahimsa, don't do violence, that's a good thing. But there's something to do also. That is what we call lila. That is what we call rasananda. And Krishna, his another name is rasaraja. He wants to take us there. In Bhagavad Gita, he tells us in a very beautiful way, in the very, very beginning, what we'll have to do, what is the crux, in a sense, of the issue. How to move from violence to nonviolence and beyond. 
This is really what he, what he teaches in the very first chapter. He tells Arjuna, Arjuna asks him, you know, who's here? It's a battlefield. So he says, well, who's, who's assembled here? And who's on what side? And, and so forth. Krishna hasn't spoken yet. First thing he says, he drives the chariot of Arjuna in between the two armies. And he stops it just at a certain place. He says, well, here are some of the people here. On this side, the side you're going to fight with, is Bhishma and Drona. Just see. Well, this is very significant if you, knew the, if you know the context. The context is what? Bhishma is practically speaking, the, 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 for all intents and purposes, the father of Arjuna. He's a, literally a grandfather, but he raised the son uh, in the father's absence. Drona. Drona is his teacher of military arts. He's a, he's a warrior. And in India, India, of course, any elder, any teacher is, uh, is, is revered. It's a land of respect, actually, and, uh, and regard. And the cows are honored, the earth is honored, the trees are honored, and so forth. And, it's uh, really the kind of the mother of uh, devotion as far as uh, countries go. And, uh, and so he has a great regard for, for Drona and great regard for uh, Bhishma and for good reasons. They're his teacher and his father, practically. <laughs> good reason to respect them. But Krishna, by pulling the chariot and stopping right there, he's saying to them, these are attachments that you have. And this attachment to Bhisma, this attachment to Drona, who's a teacher of the art of your, li- of your way of living, is creating a sense of identity in you that cannot endure. It cannot endure. It will disappear. It's a bubble in the ocean. And it's distracting you from what you really are and all the potential that you have, and your, your capacity to be a lover, ultimately, to be a lover. That means, in a basic sense, to be a giver and more. Giving, we do, for the most part, consciously. We do it in a calculated way, because it will get something, we'll get something in return often. Or maybe we, in a higher sense, we give it because it should be given. But still, we're calculating. It should be given. Therefore, I'll give it. When giving reaches the full, its full measure, unconsciously, the giving itself is the gift and it's done spontaneously, without thinking. Just think, to, be, to live, to, to give is to live, actually. This is the way life progresses by giving. The more the self gives, the more it expands. The more we take, the more our sense of self contracts. This is a mystery of life. Life is not reasonable. It doesn't make sense. It's not mathematically um, sound. In that, if I have ten and I give six, I end up with four. So if I have something and I give it, I end up with less. 
But our practical experience in life, if we stop to think about it, is the more we give, and the more we give means the quality in our giving, and to whom it's given also, that will help to determine the measure of the giving. The more we give, the more we grow. I cannot hold up something here and say, see, I gave, and look what I got for that. It's right here. Here's my other thing. I gave over there, I got this. When we give, we grow, and we can't even talk about it practically. We can't, we just, there's a sense. I'm a bigger and better, kinder, and more evolved person. You know, Darwin was fond of his idea. And there's a lot of truth to it, that uh, this is a land of um, survival of the fittest. It's a mean place. It's a mean place. The Bhagavad, the great Bhagavad, the sequel to the Gita, it says the same thing. It says, oh, the two-legged are food for the four-legged. And uh, one-legged jiva jiva jivanam. Describing the world, it says, one living being is food for another. Hunters and the hunted. While you're hunting, someone is hunting you. Not, this is science. Bhagavad is an old book, but it has a penetrating insight into the nature of material experience, and it doesn't disagree with, with Mr. Darwin on this. But it doesn't stop there, either. And it doesn't tell us that the most evolved person is the meanest person either. No. It says that from a relative perspective, in terms of maintaining this illusory sense of self, I'm American, I'm an Indian, I'm Brazilian, whatever may be the case. These are fleeting senses of identity, as I said, derived from our sense of what's mine and so forth. In terms of preserving that, it might do you well to be mean, to get ahead in the business world. You might do well to step on the heads of others. That's not a long-term policy, perhaps. (laughs) But uh, the world does work in that way to a large extent. And sometimes you have to wake up from your flowery illusion as to how things should work and so forth and be mean yourself to, (laughs) to, to, to make it in the world, to be someone in the world. But from a larger and broader perspective, the whole show cannot be maintained, however mean you are. Even if you beat everyone up and lock them up and conquer them and so forth. Time and tide, as they say, waits for no man or woman. So the Bhagavad speaks about higher ideas as well. How you can survive and what you are separate from that sense of self derived from your attachments and how, how the survival, survival, the kindest will survive. The kindest will survive. You have to move in the opposite direction of the cur- outgoing current of the world, as I say, to arrive at this. But this is what Krishna is teaching Arjuna, to how to be a lover. And that when I say kindness, I mean the kind person, the kind person gives. But to reach the pitch of giving, where the giving is not a conscious act that one does. This is ragbhakti. This is the idea. It's described like this. This is the, the culmination of the Gita's ideal. Rag means attachment. Just like you do things spontaneously without thinking about them because you're so attached to them. And you think it's you, so you, you're spontaneously there to tender to the needs. So, 
attachment to this idea, what I'm talking about, this central idea of yoga. And in Gita, Krishna is called Yogeshwaram. That means he knows something about yoga. Yogeshwaram. It means who is the master of mysticism. Okay, this is what he's teaching. He must know the secret. He's teaching life moves by giving. Find, edit the quality of your giving and find the right place to repose your giving. Then you can be a lover in the full sense of the term. In other words, I may give without reservation, without calculation, but if I give to something that cannot take fully my capacity to give, which expands like, like a beam of light into infinity. infinity. I'm, I'm at, we are a unit of giving capacity. That's what we are. Even in our taking, we're giving, but it's misplaced. So it looks like taking. We're giving ourselves. Giving our heart. So where to give it? To find the center and to give without reservation, without expectation of return, and out of love, out of affection, and so forth. This is the idea that Krishna is leading Arjuna to in the Bhagavad Gita. It's like this. One, the moving in the material world that is the taking is the violence that we're all involved in, knowingly or unknowingly. Doing violence to ourselves, really. To move away from that non-violence, that is a good idea. But, if you, but what the teaching of the Gita is that you take this violence that we're involved in, this taking, this exploitation, and that you dig a hole and put it inside and then you build a temple on top of it. Something like that. Because it's teaching how to end non-violence by loving. Not simply by stopping violence, but by loving. You see, the best defense is a good offense, they say. This is bhakti. So it, it, he, he's teaching Arjun to be a giver, but in the context of teaching him to be a giver and a lover, he says, you have to stop taking. I've, you asked who's here, who to fight with? It's you. <laughs> you have to fight with yourself, sir. Here are your attachments to Bhishma and Drona. This is defining what you think you are. And I'm telling you today, that will have to be slayed. This metaphor of the battle is to teach us this. It's you that has to be on the altar of sacrifice. You must kill yourself in terms of your taking capacity. We have to kill to live in terms of maintaining our material sense of self. You have to put a death to that. It's open hunting season on your taking ego. Your ego, your sense of self, your identity, that's really derived from taking. And, and, and how to do that? Well, the beginning, uh, yes, you have to pass through, you have to start, stop taking. But the way, the beautiful way in which teach, Krishna teaches to stop taking is, is to present the idea of, of where to give, how and where to give. And in the context of taking that giving up, this is what we call bhakti, of taking that up, the taking then automatically diminishes as one becomes fulfilled from giving. So it's a world of violence in the Hindu texts, the material world is called martyrlokam. Martyr means death, so it's a place of death. But we are the life. 
And when we identify with matter, then we make ourselves like dead also, practically speaking. We limit ourselves to such an extent. So yoga is for moving away from that, moving within, and sitting, and then dancing. Now we are moving and taking, we should sit, and if we sit, if we move properly, we can sit. If we sit properly, we can dance. That is the idea of kirtan. It's celebratory. It's the celebration of the fullness that comes from actually giving. That kind of outreach, that kind of movement, hmm? that, is, that, that is beautiful. That is, that, is the, that is the full giving to share one's fullness in love. So these are abstract it's an abstract talk, I admit, but <laughs> but um, I hope you can appreciate some of the points and um, and um, and be inspired to move to some extent uh, away from the uh, you know all forms of violence. I mean, we are called here to speak in in relation to a topic and a, an extreme example of violence. And when we see the extreme examples, then it may strike a chord with us and how 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 mean people can be. But I, and, and they can be, and, and, and they should be called for that, and we should point it out, and we should try to put an end to that. But, but it should remind us also of the meanness within us, and however small that is, we should do away with that. The Gita's lesson is one sense is, Doctor, cure thyself. We're the problem. You have to, it's just kind of a small, you know, like Gandhi started in a small way. Yeah. So start in a small way with yourself. It may seem small, but it's huge. To take the meanness out of yourself, that'll be much harder than telling other people to stop uh, hurting the dolphins. And not that that shouldn't be done. It should, but the power to speak about that in a compelling way and to, and to, and to, and to really have influence, that will be dependent upon the measure to which, the extent to which you actually decided to take the meanness out of you, the violence out of yourself. This is a huge uh, calling, if you will, hmm? to kill the taking within us. So if we can rise to that occasion, then there's hope for the world. There's hope for us. And we can we can really be a a a, a, a contributor at at the at the really kind of the um, at the uh, heart of the of the issue. Just like you take for example, there are many problems in the world. Hunger is a problem too. Violence is a problem. Hunger is a problem. Let's take hunger. It's the same principle. Uh, hunger is a problem, but will it ever be solved by feeding people? Will people's will hunger stop? You'll be hungry in the context of feeding them. <laughs> and need to eat, at least afterwards, if not before or in between. No. All of these problems are related to the ignorance that, that it's at the, at, the, at, the, at the foundation of our sense of self based on attachment our sense of I, based on our false sense of mine, what belongs to me, what I own, which is absolutely, in reality, nothing. So yoga is for this, and it really is um, about ending violence, 
I realize it sounds philosophical, philosophical it is, it's abstract and so forth, but, uh, and I don't want to um, speak about it in this way in such that any less um, concern or compassion will be there for the uh, event that, that, uh, that initially uh, uh, promoted the idea of the program. But I ask you to think about it. Violence, the Gita asks us to think about violence on the deepest level and make, try to make a solution to that. Are there any questions, comments, any kindness? <laughs> You're kind, listen. Yes? You mentioned giving and that giving should be free flowing. Uh huh. Okay. How is it that we learn to understand receiving? Receiving? Receiving. 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 Well, giving is receiving, right? <laughs> That's the ultimate lesson. Giving is the receiving. That's a beta bed. One and different. The giving is the receiving. That's what we should learn. Of course, people give to us and we should learn, I believe this, that to receive as an act of giving. In other words, we should receive what others give to us. We should, we should lead our lives in such a way that we are so full, so content, so happy, so, uh, so much realized in terms of what we are, in reality, that we have no, none of the needs that we perceive today. And this is what yoga is about. And then, from that fullness, well, we will receive as an act of giving. In other words, we will receive whatever honor others may offer us, or facility and so forth, with the thought that we are giving them the opportunity to participate in the fullness of our own life. That's a kind of giving. So a saintly person thinks like this, that I, my receiving is an act of giving because I don't need anything. One who doesn't need anything, then if they receive, that's giving. You follow? If a sadhu is living in a cave, he doesn't need anything, you come to, what do you have to give? You think, I'll give him a flower, maybe. That's nice. Flower's a beautiful thing. He doesn't need the flower. But he takes it anyway. That's he's giving. Giving you then an opportunity to participate by giving yourself. Participating in the wholeness, the fullness. So this is how I think about it. <laughs> that the receiving is also act of giving. Yes, further? One edge on. Uh, so then that, in the acknowledgement of that, that should replace taking? Yeah. That's right. Yes, sir. Would you comment on ruthless compassion and kindness? Compare, contrast, relate. What does that say to you? Would I comment on ruthless kindness and compassion? Ruthless compassion. Uh, how do they relate with the What's the, what's the difference? What's yeah, just a little discussion, your thoughts on that. And we're talking about nonviolence here. 
they're all formed. Uh-huh. <laughs> well, um, kindness and compassion, they're, I guess they're kind of synonymous in many respects. I don't know if I'd make a real fine um, distinction between the two. Um, and I don't know if you're looking for that, per se, but um, uh, with regard to ruthless, it's an interesting word uh, to use. Um, you know, it's said in, in, in the Mahabharata that uh, ahimsa paramo dharma, the highest dharma is ahimsa, but then the next line says, himsa dharma, or dharma himsa tataivacha. It says, but there's also a place for being ruthless <laughs> or to be violent. So, so that's kind of a good application of it, I think. To be, uh, to be ruthless is about being um, kind. I think, I think that it should be termed, that, that, that the, the, the true expression of that would be to turn on yourself, really, to turn on your, as I say, your your ego and uh, ruthlessly and uh, and uh, shoot him down. That would be my idea of ruthless uh, kindness and compassion. You know, it said uh, giving begins with the, what do they say? At home. So you kind of have to give to yourself in order to give to others, don't you? You have to give to yourself. And, and really to give to yourself is to be ruthlessly kind to yourself and to, to therefore uh, bring about, uh, sit, go about, systematically go about putting an end to your uh, sense of self that's a taker. So I would, I would direct it there. So yoga is kind of a heroic type of a path and... Uh, and here the setting is in the Gita, but they say Arjuna is a warrior, but he's a yogi, and he's being taught really to go ruthlessly against him, his false sense of self, his taking self, and thereby be, I guess, ruthlessly kind and compassionate. Another question or comment? I appreciate your time and. Uh, and uh, attention, and um, I don't want to speak for too long. I know there's another, some events and so forth, uh, cultural events, and I will say a word about those cultural events and then go silent here. Uh, I think that um, um, these particular cultural events are um, expressions of what I'm talking about in practice. And the nature of them are such that they that that they will be continued in perfection. They're uh, just like uh, we heard the the, uh, the chanting. Hmm? So kirtan, satatam kirtayantomam. In the context of teaching Arjun how to become a, this uh, lover and so forth, he brings himself into the picture as the perfect object of love. This is what the mystics have have talked about. If you look at the Hindu pantheon and you look cross-culturally to other religious traditions as well, everyone's got a god and a goddess or both and a description of them and so forth, holding different weapons or no weapons or different forearms, six heads or 
There's many different ways of, and meaningful, meaningful poetic ways of expressing the deity, the center, and so forth. Where the Hindu mystics have expressed their idea of the center as Krishna. And if you study this idea, it's a, he's, the, he's depicted as the complete taker, the complete enjoyer. Of all the gods and goddesses in the Hindu pantheon, if you study them, they've all got something to do. They've all got something to do, something to attain. And Krishna has nothing to attain. He's just playing. He's, he's playful, medium size, human-like, and so forth. And, you think, and you're saying, this is the center of everything? But because you think the center of everything, the, the source of all consciousness must be all powerful and, and so forth. And so we're kind of, whoa, the, where's the most? And, and it's just this fellow playing a flute and so forth. It seems like, wait a minute, <laughs> I would think about that. But you should think about that because one way to think about it is that if you want to play, you have to have some power. Am I right? If you want to take a vacation, you have to have some money in the bank. You have to have worked and gathered some power. So when they depicted the Godhead as all playful, they meant this is all powerful. Hmm? Hmm. And they've depicted the Hindus the head of divinity, the wisdom of the Buddha, and uh, in other ways they depicted different aspects. This is the heart. Krishna's the heart. The kind of romantic... Um, heart of the absolute. He's depicted as adolescent, youthful. Youth is attractive. Adolescence is, you know, uh, is only the adolescents want to get older. Everyone else would like to go back <laughs> and do it again. <laughs> Try it again with wisdom. So, But he's a wise adolescent and his color is sham. It's a kind of a, like the color of the rain cloud in Indian aesthetics. Every emotion has a color, so it's the color of romantic love. It's, and it's what we're chasing after. You know, you, you said we move in the world, we cannot rest until we find love. When we find it, we start moving again in a different way. Love is not about just sitting still, it's full of dynamics. She loves me, she loves me not. She loves me, she loves me not. This is, it's a, so spiritual life is like this. It's not all said and done. We're students forever. That's good. That never can be known completely. Really, we are theistic agnostics. We acknowledge that agnosticism is the only logical conclusion. And we admit we cannot know. We believe, but we cannot know everything. Unknown and unknowable. He who says, the Upanishads say, that he knows Brahman does not know Brahman. But the conclusion is to go in the back door to love Brahman. Because if you love someone, then they'll tell you all their secrets. And the secret is Brahman is trying to figure himself out also. Exploring the mystery of himself. That I'm all that I am. And it's, it's showing up in different avatars, different des descents of the God at the end of the world. Exploring himself. Expressing himself. And sharing that with us. So this is how they, and Krishna, the center of that, the source of all the avatars, all the descents of the Godhead, representing the romantic heart of the Absolute, who's then the object to whom 
we should give our love in a, in a systematic, in a yogic sense, the idea. So they're singing about Krishna. You know, there's all kinds of kirtan. <laughs> See, there's only one kind of kirtan. That is Krishna kirtan. If you study, kirtan means it's a song, and kirti means fame, so to, to give fame to others, to glorify others. If you study the Hindu sacred text, you find kirtan belongs to Krishna. It's Vishnu Bhakti. It's an anga, a limb of Vishnu Bhakti, not anything else. It's not a limb of Gyan. It's not a limb of Yoga. Karma is a limb of Bhakti. It's for Vishnu Avatar, and particular, it's for Krishna. Therefore, we have Krishna Nam Kirtan, Leela Kirtan. You cannot do Leela Kirtan of Shiva, or Shiva never asks to have his name chanted in any book. Glorifying Shiva, you never find Shiva say, do kirtan about me and I'll be there. Durga, Kali, they never say, chant my name. Never. <laughs> never. But kirtan is so nice. Krishna kirtan. The people who like Kali and Shiva, they incorporate it into their, into their practice. We don't object, but... But this, you know, because after all, this singing, you know, it's like... Uh, it's, it's a romantic kind of singing that we do in the kirtan, actually. The mantra is very, it's very, it's about the romance of the absolute, so to speak, the love life of the absolute. So, anyway, it's a cultural activity, and it's an expression, and then it's music, song, dance, these are cultural, but it's an expression of this love in practice. And when they become perfect, they won't stop that. And so, so uh, I'm honored to be here with such kirtaneers, as the Mayapuris and and with the dance of Gurangi Priya also that will and others I her students I suppose that will will follow. So I ask you please to pay attention to those events and and try to draw some some love and a giving capacity from them. Thank you very much.